I think it's dark days in the UK. Well, how about that? How about when a, someone from the UK comes here and goes to lunch at Balthazar and is a rude celebrity, like we expect celebrities to be? And then, you know, Twitter has it for lunch for three or four days, and he ultimately has to fall on the sword and apologize on his talk show. Yeah, I mean, it's the main character on Twitter phenomenon. James yeah, Corden. What... James Corden has built himself a world where nobody likes him anymore, right? I don't think this was a one-off, and I can tell you from personal experience. Oh, wow. Go on. Yeah, he's just like a miserable little weasel. He makes Calacanis look like a nice guy. No, I'm kidding. Don't edit that out, please. <laughs> yeah, don't edit <laughs> that out. Edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> People versus Algorithms is a show about detecting patterns in media, technology, and culture. I'm Brian Morrissey, writer of the Rebooting Newsletter and podcast of the same name. And each week, I'm joined by former Hearst Magazine's executive, Trey Young, who writes the People versus Algorithms newsletter, and Alex Schleifer of Universal Entities. This is our ninth episode of this show. We started out with a rough idea of what it would be, and we'll continue to evolve it as we go. One big help to us as we think through how to improve is to get your feedback. So please do send any suggestions you have to bmorrissey at gmail.com. This week, we're talking about catastrophism. I was a history major, and I still love reading history. Part of that is because there are patterns that exist in history. The old saying is that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Mark Twain probably said that, and even if he didn't, he'd get credit for it on Twitter. Now, reading history helps you put what's happening around you, and it always seems like you're living through particularly chaotic and challenging times, in some perspective. And I often feel that what is now called the discourse is unhelpfully catastrophic. Yes, I know there's war in Europe. Hundreds are dying every day of COVID still. We have political instability and retrograde forces. The economy is overheated and heading into perilous territory. Climate change is moving from a cause to a possible extinction event, I could go on. In short, it is not a good time if you are naturally inclined to anxiety. Yet this catastrophism, warranted in areas like climate change for sure, is likely counterproductive in the long run. You just need to go back to Cassandra. She warned of impending doom so much through her prophecies that when she warned of a real impending disaster, nobody believed her. We run that risk in our fragmented and tribalized media culture, where it's popular to throw around terms like late capitalism and hellscape. Now, ignoring problems isn't the answer, but perhaps a bit of humility is. After all, none of us has all the answers to life's riddles. I hope you enjoy this conversation. So Troy, first thing I want to talk about is about uh, trust. Trust in news is notoriously low. Uh, Semaphore cited a survey they did with Gallup saying that only 34% trust in news. But this mirrors, you know, trust and decline across all kinds of institutions. And I think most of the times the capital J journalists end up focusing on the external factors, which are real. You know, Trump demonizing the press as enemies of the people, social media amplifying disinformation, general societal unhappiness, I guess, divisiveness. But what I wonder is like how much lies in the product itself. You know, bad news 
bias is pretty well known. And I don't know, my own personal belief, and maybe it's getting older, is the news seems increasingly fatalistic and catastrophic. Do you ever get this feeling? I do, actually. I do a lot. I asked my son about it. He's a pretty media savvy guy. And it's hard to avoid the kind of overarching and kind of existential issue for his generation of climate, which is, I think, a huge contributor to just general anxiety in how they see the world and how they perceive anything that's done at the expense of our ecosystem. But I thought about it a little bit more, Brian. I thought mm -hmm. like, you know, so is there's a kind of, there's a lack of kind of optimism and there's, it, it makes you wonder, is it, do things just suck or do we feel like, or we perceive them to suck? And, you know, I started to try to break it down. Maybe you can help me with it. Would that be okay? Yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean, first thing I thought is that there's the sort of, let's call it the CEO problem. And the CEO problem is like, when you're a CEO of a company, you see a lot, you see a lot of things and you see a lot of bad things because you have access to all the information, particularly the things that create risk in an organization. So you see the good things like results and all that, but you see a lot of bad things. You see HR issues, you see, you know, kind of, you know, impending financial issues. I mean, there's just problems all the time. And it feels like in media that as opposed to the past when it was controlled and funneled through a narrow set of outlets and we could, we could consume it in distinct periods. And there was bad news, but there was also good news. And the media tried to manage the good news, bad news balance. It's now like kind of every person for themselves and you're surrounded in news. And so you got to filter through it, but you get a lot of really negative signals. Mm -hmm. And of course, that is born by the kind of participation effect where everybody kind of has a say and everybody creates it. And we have kind of a million points of light. So more people involved in the conversation makes it naturally more divisive and complicated to sort through it. And then, like you said, I think we have the kind of real stuff effect, which is in addition to climate change, you have you know, massively kind of changing social norms around things like sexuality and inequality. You have, you know, geopolitical complexity and you have uh, our values are shifting, I think, and people are trying to figure out what that means. And it pits one point of view or generational set of values against another. And then I would argue that there is no kind of underlying foundation or influence of religion that kind of can kind of, you know, support a lot of the kind of how we see the world and the interactions that we have collectively. So I was, those are the things I was thinking of. Just to recap, it's sort of like we see more, we have an incredibly complicated ecosystem that we have to wade through, and there's just a lot going on right now. <clears throat> so, Yeah, I would add one thing is incentives, right? Uh, because I think there's a good argument to be made that the incentives that are laid out there in the current media ecosystem are such that it encourages divisive content. Like you're rewarded for that. Substack is not all political uh, food fights, but look, it's pretty clear that there is a path to success in being the main character of political infighting. That is obvious. 
I was listening to, I was actually flying back from Madrid in economy, I might add. And I listened to seven and a half of the eight hours of Lex Friedman's podcast with Balaji Srinivasan. And at around hour seven, he got into his- That by the way, is insane. <laughs> his ability to just riff is unbelievable. Which one? Lex or, or Balaji? Balaji. Okay. Well, I mean, like I was just, there were no obvious breaks, which I was very impressed uh, by and alarmed by. But one of the things, anytime anyone talks about the media, I know that it's going to be, it's going to be bad. But, you know, he does bring up a good point. And I do think that there has long been, this shift to subscriptions has been good, I think, in building a lot more resilient business models. But at the same time, it's hard not to come to the conclusion that a subscription model rewards reinforcing the groupthink of whoever you're trying to get to subscribe to your news product. It seems like a flaw, a built-in structural flaw. Like no one wants to subscribe to the AP. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, back to your question on can you embed it in the product? I know that the semaphore has been lampooned and it's going to take a while to see how it changes the behavior of the journalists. I find it useful as a reader because I, I skip down to the bottom and read, you know, the counterpoint or, you know, what is it called? View from the ground or something like that. There's both. I find that kind of structure in media to be useful when it isn't is distracting as I find it is with Axios, which breaks everything up in kind of in a way that that to me kind of disrupts the story telling of the story in a coherent way. So yeah, I think the product structure can help, but let's be honest, this is not a media product. I mean, if you really wanted, if you really aspired to kind of to live up to the semaphore mission, which is to kind of present, be a positive force in the kind of divisiveness of media, you wouldn't have targeted your media product at, you know, global elites. Uh, you know, you would have tried to make a kind of daily mail for everybody, you know, that presented, you know, complex political or well, just complex subjects in ways where that helped people see both sides. But it's certainly not going to happen through semaphore. Yeah, look, they're 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 focused on that global elite that in the abstract wants bipartisanship and it's almost like virtue signaling to some degree. Listen, so I, the people on the right of the global elite look at semaphore as a bunch of whining liberals and the liberals read it and say, this is nifty. This is just more of what I already get. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. I think beyond the doing it on the product level, I'm interested in the idea that there is going to be a reaction to this of a new type of media-like product. And I think just going back to the Lex Friedman, I never really fully got into him, but with the one he did with uh, Balaji and then the one with uh, with Ye, I'm very interested in how these kind of media-like products are taking this open-minded dialogue approach. And I think there's upsides and downsides to it, but I don't think a 
it's not the kind of product a capital J journalist would make. And I think that there's space for lots of different types of content. And I think this is going to be an interesting, it's going to be an interesting type of content. That, Listen, that- I think Lex is right about it. I think Rogan tries to do the same thing, although it's yeah. impossible not to come to the table with, in terms of, you know, the kinds of guests you bring on and how you engage in conversation and all that with point of view. But I think it's right, actually. I think that audio in particular is a really good, I mean, listen, it's really good for extreme conversation, witness right-wing radio, but it's also really good for people with different points of view to engage in the right setting, particularly when the moderator um, approaches it accordingly to have a more civilized, more nuanced, more in many ways disagreeable conversation. Like I didn't watch the whole Kanye thing, but that was wild. Did you see that? I, I didn't see it. A I little listened bit of to it. YouTube. Yeah, I, I listened. I thought it was good. I think you know Kanye, or I guess he's Yay now. Is you know, it's really hard for me to unpack it because obviously the stuff he's saying to me is is very offensive. And so, you know, it's hard to unpack that from all the free speech stuff and free expression and whatnot. I thought the way he, Lex handled it was mostly good. It was a very different approach than a journalist would do, for sure. Mm-hmm. I don't mean it as a bad way, it just is. And I think that's why you'll increasingly see when these sort of stars and celebrities, if they don't just go direct on their own, I think they're going to increasingly go to these type of outlets. And I think that is a challenge for the media, right? Like they used to be the only game in town. I'm See, I'm using the media. They used to be the only game in town. And now they're competing with people with far bigger reach. So that's the part where I don't agree with people like Balaji with his woke media and stuff like this and all powerful. I'm like, give me a break. Like there's never been like, it's never been easier for elites who always are perpetually aggrieved. It seems like these days to get their points of view out. Like, I don't know why they're, they of all people are so concerned about being able to express themselves. I mean, my God, the VCs have never been able to express themselves more. But you got to admit, it's an interesting shift, right? Like it is a time when, People that want to get the word out are looking at non-traditional environments more than ever before. The fact that Kanye went basically his first big interview post, you know, the kind of, you know, the rantings and the crazy shit he was saying was with Lex Friedman, who's a MIT AI PhD, who has, was really a podcast hobbyist and now is, you know, obviously influential, but hey, let me read you this thing because I actually put it in my note here. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, I guess, I suppose both a movie recommendation and, and another characterization of the divisive time we're living in. A movie that's definitely worth watching. I wouldn't give it like, you know, nine and a half donuts or whatever mechanism we rating mechanism we're going to use, but it's called Vengeance and it was written and directed by BJ Novak. And there's a quote at the beginning, I think when BJ's talking to of all people, John Mayer, who makes, who has a cameo appearance in the movie. And the headline here is time and place disconnection. And I feel this profoundly. So I wanted to read it. And it's the dialogue is as follows. America's divided Uh, But it's not for the reason that we think. We think that America's divided by geography, red state, blue state, city, country. We're missing something far more profound. America isn't divided by space. America's divided by time. We don't live in the moment anymore. And why would we when we can live in any moment that's ever been recorded? 
And when we experience something we really love, our overwhelming instinct is to somehow file it away for later. That's interesting. We don't watch movies in the theater. We don't watch TV when it airs. We don't even have conversations at the same time because we text. And when you text, I can say hi and you could say hi back in a second or in a minute or never. So this is this idea that, you know, we don't live on the same timeline. And these, you know, I suppose these little discontinuous bubbles emerge. And in that, maybe we don't develop as much empathy or shared understanding or an opportunity to see things maybe in a completely different way. I don't know. What do you think of that? I think that's very well said, and it actually lines up with uh, the other topic I wanted to get to, which is about optimism and pessimism and realism. I don't know if you saw this, but the main character on Twitter last week, one day, was this woman uh, named Daisy, who now goes by Garden Coffee Lady uh, on Twitter. And she she posted a tweet in which uh, she said uh, that... Every morning she goes out into her garden and has coffee with her husband and they just talk for a couple of hours and that it never gets old. She loves him so much. It was, I saw it originally and I was like, oh, that's really nice. This person is, you know, really finding their happiness. They're taking the candide approach and truly cultivating their garden. Of course, she was then <laughs> ripped to shreds as some kind of uber capitalist. And it was... It was kind of funny, I thought. I don't know if you saw it. <laughs> I did see it. I think I sent you some of the responses on Twitter, which I thought were hilarious. Yeah, which were very even-handed, as Twitter is known for. But it's a reflection, I do think, for the hilariousness of the time. Uh, of uh... Well, the first thing is, I mean, my wife and I try to walk the dog every day, but we mostly, I mean, sometimes it's pleasant. Sometimes we argue, but this seems a little, I don't know fantastic. But do you have any of the responses there? A couple of them were pretty funny. And here's kind of a funny one. I wake up every day fully engulfed in flames and being eaten alive by wolves. The fact <laughs> that your tweet doesn't represent my experience is a personal affront to each and every fire eater and dingo who's had to rise before dawn uh, to do the grueling labor of shooting this snuff film. <laughs> <laughs> I think, the, but the more serious thing underneath this is this idea of catastrophism, and I can't tell whether it's getting older and slowly becoming Grandpa Sim Simpson shaking his fist at the clouds, or whether this is just a moment in time, or if this is just how we're going to live for, forever. I mean, like for instance, uh, Rishi Sunak uh, is going to be the new UK Prime Minister, and <laughs> I saw he's being attacked because, at least according to the Times, because he has a Peloton. He has a Peloton and, a, and he uses a smart coffee mug. Well, who uses a smart coffee mug? I mean, that, that part is suspicious. I mean, he went to Stanford, so... No, fuck people with smart coffee mugs. <laughs> How dare they? I didn't know this. By the way, you guys probably know this. The thing that I learned, I was just in Philadelphia the last few days and in the suburbs, and I didn't know out in the suburbs, they've got uh, Wi-Fi coffee light mugs? bulbs. No, Wi-Fi light bulbs. Beyond just that, like the light bulbs now have Wi-Fi? Yeah. You didn't know that? Yeah, all my fucking light bulbs have Wi-Fi. I had like no idea. When did this happen? Okay, so... So I would call there's a there's a counter trend as there always is Brian and I would call this the kind of late stage capitalism prose of young 
smart journalists, and you see a lot of it on. Don't be ageist, t- Troy. It's I'm a not- bad look for middle-aged men. Okay, well, you see a lot of it on Substack. You see it everywhere, but there was a there dirt. Do you know the newsletter Dirt? There oh, was yeah. a guest writer on Dirt called a guy named Leo Kim. You probably know him. I think he's a writer for Wired or anyway. And they, the sort of sentiment and language is what you hear a lot. So I'll read a little bit of it because it sets up a counter trend that's apparently happening on TikTok that is optimistic in the face of real nihilism, right? So it's sort of his setup was a wash in a bleak media scape. I had simply assumed that optimism had long been exiled into the realm of corny naivety, gone the way of live, laugh, loving, and hashtag girl bossing. So it came as a shock when my TikTok feed started filling up with posts about, quote, the indomitable human spirit. And this is a trend that's happening on TikTok right now. And I just want to tell you how he frames it because I thought it was interesting. Uh, rather than use the visual language to express numb irony or indifference, as is often the case, these posts use it to poke fun at the idea of nihilism itself. In so doing, this trend repositions optimism as the truly radical choice while framing apathy as boringly passé, which I thought was really interesting. So there's a bunch of people that are saying, yes, the world's going to hell in the handbasket, but it's our job to kind of you know, fight through this. And they are taking to TikTok to find ways to be optimistic, you know, amid the apocalypse. I thought that was cool. Yeah, I think it is. And I think it's part of what we always see is, you know, the overcorrection. And there's always, you know, I, to me, it's like the pendulum always swings too far in one direction and then it corrects. And I think obviously the, at least to me, it's obvious that the pendulum swung too far just in our cultural discourse into catastrophism, find the bad part of nearly everything. And ultimately people, people start to tune out that kind of stuff. It's the normal. I mean, that's why Cassandra was Cassandra is when everything is doom then you stop paying attention and that's normal. And so I think that'll end up having to correct itself. But I think what, having been on the the other end of it as a reporter, I think a lot of times, a lot of things are ascribed to journalists that to me just like aren't true. Like most people are just trying to do their job well in good faith. And anytime people start to talk about an entire group, I mean, that was part of like Lex Friedman's conversation with Kanye. I don't mean to equate the two, but like, he's like, call out individuals. Don't start to, you know, lump everyone as part of like a group. Right. And I think the same thing honestly happens with quote unquote, the media is like focus on like individual instances versus you know, listening to that Balaji conversation, he, he seems to believe that like, uh, like the entire media establishment like gets together and like, you know, the Salzburgers are calling shots and like, you know, the orders are filtering down. And it's just like, I'm like, what planet are you on? I mean, it's very bizarre. But you did tell me that being a journalist for a long time turns you into a sociopath. Your words. That's true. Yes, it can, because people are lying to you all the time, right? And people are trying to use you for their own purposes all the time. And that's why I think a lot of the criticism of, quote unquote, the news is both valid and yet at the same time, it's bad faith because a lot of the people are setting up the media as enemies. Look at what Donald Trump, everyone is like 
in some ways to me, like Trump is not unique in that instance. He set up the media as the enemy, even though he catered to it. He's obsessed with the New York Times. You know, he would be out there tweeting, slamming Maggie Haberman and then like calling her the next day. I mean, a lot of this stuff is completely bad faith. And I think that's the part I can't get around is, yeah, there's definitely bad news bias. And I think that we're in a particular period and there's some generational aspects to it as well that has led to, again, this catastrophism, I don't know what else to call it, in a lot of the coverage of our society. I'm frustrated by the fact that people are calling this intellectual honesty, but then just always talking in generalizations. Don't you find that? Everything's a generalization. These people, the media, the news, the this, like there's no conversation here. And even on a lot of the stuff that you will hear on Rogan or Lex Friedman, people are saying, well, somebody had to say, somebody had to say what? That is this amorphous blob of things that is doing a thing that you don't like. I haven't learned anything from these people. So therefore I don't listen to them. Right. (laughs) Well, you could listen to Barnes Brooks in the New York Times, right? He wrote about what was the correction that came out of, you know, I guess kind of BLM. And when we started, uh, you know, doing important work of change, of improving diversity in Hollywood and all that. And now we seem to be kind of shifting the other direction because a lot of the projects that we put into motion, apparently not we that were put into motion, didn't find an audience. Like, I think one thing Hollywood is extremely good at is sensing where popular sentiment is going and reacting really quickly to push product to, you know, Uh, contemporary tastes or what people want. And so they obsess with what, you know, around there's an obsession like there is in most journalism around what works. Right. And Mm -hmm. so, so now there's this, you know, there's been a couple of films that, you know, I don't know, there was that recent kind of gay rom-com that was a total flop. Bros. Bros. The speculation is, you know, will this kind of new diversity be the victim of an overcorrection back or of the recession? So America is an mm-hmm. extraordinarily fast-moving pendulum. Yeah, well, I mean, the recession is going to be the great corrective to lots of stuff, good and bad, right? I mean, I think the days of of employers, for instance, catering to every you know whim of employees, we've all seen the TikToks of what it's like to work at one of these big tech platforms. To me, like if you're still posting that sort of day in the life. TikTok showing you like getting the free food and then going to yoga, you're sort of marking yourself out for the impending layoffs because they're coming. I mean, we're going to talk about that later. But, you know, I think unfortunately, or a lot of the programs that were put in place over the last two years, I think we'll end up seeing them fizzle out and fade away. Yeah. Trey, the other thing I want to talk about is what is going on in the ad market right now. There's some serious weirdness, I think, because you're seeing... You see the ad holding companies upping their forecasts for the year. And then <clears throat> you, you see what's going on with everyone from Spotify to Snap to even Google. I mean, Google reported an ad revenue decrease in the quarter yesterday. Meta is going later and its stock is already tanking in advance of what is expected well, you, to be. Just to be clear, YouTube, Google was up, YouTube was down. Yeah. Well, I think what wasn't Google's overall? Overall, it was up modestly quarter over quarter, but nowhere near where it had been in the past. Yeah. I mean, so I think, you know, ultimately the question is how much of this is the macroeconomic landscape and how much of this is Apple kneecapping 
the industry, or at least a segment of the industry, with uh, its ATT, supposed privacy initiative, in air quotes. I guess I have a take on it. So I would call it the, the economy right now is confounding for people because we hear so much negativity yet, you know, a lot of companies are doing okay and people are spending money. So we've got high employment uh, or low unemployment. People have money because they didn't spend very much money during COVID. The bottom has not fallen out for a lot of sectors, retail, the service economy, luxury, travel. And it may, but the bottom is that people are still spending money. So those companies, though, live in the same environment and feel the same apprehension that we do. And that apprehension is reflected in their behavior around ad spend. At the same time, I th this is what I think is going on, by the way. The, you know, they're still paying agencies, organic growth at WPP, at Omnicom, and at Publicis was better than people expected. But at the same time, we have a fundamental, like, tectonic shift in the ad industry that marketers live in the middle of. And those changes are really, I think, in addition to the economic, like macro environment, they're a change in how attribution works. So you can't tell if your spend is working as well, right? So you have less confidence in what you're spending. And that's the Apple, you know, the cookie problem that you suggested. Mm -hmm. And then you have this real structural shift from a kind of TV industrial complex to a streaming industrial complex. And it's going to be hard to spend money at the same level in streaming environments as it was on television because that the whole TV system was tuned to absorbing that money in all kinds of ways, whether it was sponsorships or like, you know, total integrations and just being like, re, it was a well-oiled machine. And now everybody's like, do you know if your ad is actually streaming on Tubi? It's fundamental. So we're moving to a new state and with uncertainty comes conservatism. And plus, like, you know, I think people are really uncertain about the economy. So that's my take. If you want to get more specific, I think that, that Snap's problems are existential. I think the surface area for advertising at Snap, which is your stories and the Discover tab, that surface area is being massively affected by TikTok. And the communication side of that app, which is what most people use it for is much harder, if not impossible to monetize. And, you know, people just kind of hate Facebook. And so you're going to see that negativity manifest in all kinds of ways. Plus, it's not working as well. And by the way, YouTube, what did they do this quarter? Seven billion dollars? No, what was YouTube's number? I think it was seven billion dollars. Mm -hmm. Right. So YouTube has been on this incredible like growth spurt quarter after quarter. And I mean, it's going to continue because it's an absolute juggernaut. And yeah. they took a breath. That's yeah, but I think the important thing from what you said, too, is that Snap is mostly still a communication medium. I mean, you go to YouTube to watch video. It's like a very simple thing. But I think people kind of forgot because of what Facebook uh, in particular was able to do is that chat never monetized. It never monetized. I remember in the beginning that was like told to me, it's like chat never monetizes. And I think that's why people, a lot of people in the industries uh, slept on uh, Facebook, at least early on is because they saw it as like a new chat, 
and right. chat has always sucked. And I think with Snap, you know, they tried to get out of that and they tried to make it like a media destination, but it was always a weird marriage to me. When you were at Hearst, you guys built a media brand on Snap. You know, it was a really good partnership. We had tons of brands on there. We made money. I think it helped age our brands down, all of that. But I'll just tell you, you know, because I actually spend a little bit of time in Discover and I use TikTok and there's absolutely no comparison. One is a great product, TikTok. And when I say a great product, I don't just mean the way the product works. It's about the people that make content for the product and how it is ultimately filtered, provided to me. And I got to say, Discover is kind of ridiculous in comparison. To, to go to Discover, look at the content that surfaced, try to use it. It's like one is deliriously entertaining. It's like America's Funniest Home Video on steroids. And the other one is like, you know, established media brands and other weird kind of niche content creators. They're all organized. Most of them are not individuals, you know, trying to make content for a new surface area that doesn't really, it's not yeah. that entertaining. Just but not. isn't it because it doesn't make that much sense as part of the product? It feels like it's grafted onto the product to some degree. I mean, a little bit. I think it, there, there's that. But I think that the great thing and the remarkable thing that happened on TikTok, and it's born of a bunch of product innovations and just timing and the algorithm and a bunch of stuff, is that so many amazing people are lined up to create great shit for that platform every day and it shows and it's really incredible the kind of mm -hmm. content that you get on tiktok is amazing what's going to happen when tiktok is banned in the u.s and other markets it's i don't happening. think it'll be i don't think it'll be banned in the u.s it may be but i think that it will be forced to sell to u.s interests Okay. So you think it'll continue that this is just, it's going to be an ownership fight? Because there's no way. The stories that have come out with, you know, the data they're storing, like, and these things are not accidental. It's going in the direction of, I mean, we'll see what the negotiation is, which is an interesting well, it's, part. It's just way too valuable for full-on capitulation. I think that every particular, I mean, I think that Washington will have good reason to say, you know, this can't go on. And by the way, the Chinese set the precedent here. You can't use any American social media tools in China. And so it's going to change. But, you know, money is a very powerful motivator. It's way, way too valuable for them to just capitulate. And someone's going to, you know, somebody is going to try to put together a construct in financing that moves it to a more comfortable position of American ownership. Wait, the money is too great on which side? The asset. It's the most valuable media asset in the world. Right. But like, I guess I'm just thinking about it as if you're the US government, you would never have allowed the Soviet Union to own ABC or NBC or CBS during the Cold War. Why in the world? Isn't the majority shareholding outside of China? It's not that simple. It's not entirely owned by China. Yeah, you can set up like all sorts of different like structures. It's there's no company that operates in China that it is not like tied to the government. The go like I always just think like we think in the West like that or like in the United States that companies operate separate from the government usually and the government like China is clearly they do not believe any of that stuff. I just don't see how you could possibly allow a strategic competitor who is known for its in-depth surveillance of its own citizens to have ties to this asset. I just don't understand why you would do that. 
I mean, I think what Troy is saying is that it won't disappear. It'll just maybe exist within a different structure, right, Troy? I'm saying it will dis it will not disappear. I'm saying that the structure of uh that type of entertainment presented in that way by a kind of democratized creator class is changing, has changed everything in social media and it will manifest in some shape or form. And at the same time, by the way, we are seeing a kind of collective move to smaller communities. Brian, you talk about like, there's Mm -hmm. lots of other, there's lots of other trends happening in social media, but TikTok is way too important way too an important part of the country's media habit now that it just evaporates. And yeah, maybe it gets absorbed more by YouTube shorts or whatever, but unless Snap makes heroic changes in their business just to bring it back, I don't think they will be the ones that catch this. Okay, let's get to good product. Good I can product. do mine. I, I can tell you a couple. I use the Do- Dr. Bronner's shampoo slash liquid soap for every nook and cranny of my oh. middle-aged body. And oh, I use it on my hair. I use, It's just... All right, I, it's, stop. No, <laughs> I think it's a great product. I love it. I love it. So that would be... But I also... What does that retail for, Troy? The Dr. Bronner's? Oh, it's cheap. You buy yeah. it by the, you know, by the court. I would like you to do these other two. I, let's just extend this a bit because we got okay. we have an embarrassment of riches here. The he gets us thing, I think, was a really great submission, particularly oh, given okay. the theme yeah. of this episode. There's a new ad campaign, and I think they're going to do a Super Bowl ad, or maybe they already did uh, last year, which is trying to rebrand Jesus, put Jesus in a modern context. He was a lifelong Catholic. I was very interested in this. I was very early on to Jesus, but <laughs> I didn't know he needed to be revived. I like. <laughs> I don't I, know if I could say that. Like, it was just like I was a Catholic, so I can say these kind of things. Well. Let's not look at it from a denominational perspective. It's just good communication around spirituality and religion. Like, I think it actually connects. And, you know, I did this thing once, just a little context, if you don't mind. I taught a class at Miami Ad School in Miami, Brian. Oh, nice. And my big sort of term project was to rebrand America. And I was this, you know, I thought... You know, Canada's got a pretty good brand. America needs to be rebranded. And I the class this project to kind of think through, you know, all mediums, any tactics. I gave them a budget and I said, do something. What are you going to do? And it was a fascinating and very rewarding assignment. And, you know, these this agency, I think the agency, I wrote it down. I think the agency was called Lerma, was given the brief to rebrand Jesus. And I think they did a pretty good job. You know, they asked questions like, you know, did Jesus have fun? Was Jesus stressed out? You know, I looked at the number of views for these, their videos on YouTube is extremely high. It's pretty good. Yeah, I know Pete Lerma. I've known him for many years. Yeah. Yeah. Good guy. I mean, I haven't talked to him in like 10 years, but I assume he's still a good guy. No, it's good. It's good. I'm interested. I would love to have seen the other briefs that didn't, (laughs) didn't win. I can just like, I can only just imagine like what, ad agencies would do to this kind of brief of like make Jesus cool again. What do you think, Alex? Did you see any of it? Are you abstaining for religious reasons? No, I read the headline and I was like, fuck, I I can't deal with this. Sure. It's great. Call him, (laughs) rebrand Jesus, call him G and just be done with it. I mean, I I don't know. I think to me, like, it's just like, it just makes me more cynical about advertising and marketing. Like, you know, 
Like, no, you need to rebrand. It's all a story that we tell ourselves. I don't know. Well, I mean, obviously, Jesus was very big with the content marketing. I mean, Bible. <laughs> That's right. Do you think he would have had? Uh, do you think he would have had a newsletter? Yeah, I mean, they had. There's tons of newsletters. The epistles. That there's like. That's right. You know, yeah. the letters to the Corinthians and Paul Which was is, very big and big letter would, writer. <laughs> would he be on Twitter? In the Old Test, the Old Testament, like pre-Jesus, like I think Twitter to me is like the Old Testament. Like, cause the old Testament, mm. like there's a lot of smiting and there was a lot of negativity. Yeah. Vengeful, vengeful gods. Yeah. Yeah. God was not here for it. He was clapping back like nonstop. So I think, you know, new Testament, probably not very Twitter, like very much, you know, a little bit of a soft power kind of thing that Jesus was going for. I would like to watch Lex Friedman interview old Testament God. That would be good. Soon you'll be able to do this with AI. I want to add one of my own product because I was I was in Philadelphia for a few days. It's the hoagie. And, you know, a lot of places have their own like sandwiches. And I think people go to cheesesteaks when it comes to Philadelphia. But to me, the hoagie is the perfect sandwich. It is it because it has the diversity of various cold cuts. It has cheese. You've got the you've got the vegetables and the key to it. The thing that holds it together. What are the vegetables? Salad? Le yeah, yeah lettuce. lettuce and tomato. Yeah. I mean, that's enough. That's vegetable. And onion. Mm -hmm. Onion's a vegetable. And hot peppers. Those are the only toppings you need. Don't People would put mayonnaise and stuff on there, which is not a vegetable, but it's a condiment. That's not the way to go. It's just lettuce, tomato, onion. That's all you need. Oregano, maybe salt, maybe some pepper. But it is the perfect sandwich. And it all goes back to the bread. And because it is impossible to get a true hoagie anywhere else because the bread it is, it's Amoroso bread and it, it's made with Philadelphia water, which people in Philadelphia call water. <laughs> I, um, had, I had a Philadelphia okay. accent growing up, not a bad one, but I got to, I didn't know that like the way that like I spoke was like non-standard for certain words. Well, you know, there's something you say repeatedly that I find it very endearing. And when you say this thing, Alex, you may recognize this from editing the podcast, but you say stuff like this. I, have, and, I, have uh, I don't know. That's, is that a Philly thing? I don't know if that could just be a me thing. Big thanks to Troy, Alex, and our podcast editor, Jay Sparks of Pod Help Us. A reminder, please do send me your feedback on the show. You can email me at bmrse at gmail.com. And to leave the show a rating on Apple and Spotify. And if you're using Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review there. I hope it's nice, and I hope the ratings are five stars. Bye.